AA Beyond Belief is a podcast by, for, and about people who have found a secular path to sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is John. I'm your host. And today I have a guest who's beaming in all the way from Thailand, originally from London, but living in Thailand. We'll find out why and how that happened later on. But uh, let's start by just introducing you to this fella. His name is Andy F. And he is joining me right now on AA Down Belief. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. How are you doing? Thanks very much, John. My name is Andy and I am an alcoholic and it's a pleasure to be here. Well, that's nice to see you. I, I was glad to get your email. You know, it took me a few days to get to read your story, but um, it was an interesting story. And though we had different events happen in our lives, there was a lot in your story that I could personally relate to. Um, so I thought what might be a good idea is to kind of go through your 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 early life, your story, um, to what to what brought you to the place where you thought that you might like to write a book. Uh, which you're writing now, and that book is titled, what is it? Um, uh, the 12 Steps for 12 Agnostics. Steps for Agnostics, yeah. So let's begin with your with your story. Let, let's start with your, um, if you don't mind, into your early life and, 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 and into your addiction and when you got into AA and the challenges you had from there on. Of course, of course. Okay, well, I was born in London in 1954, uh, to a Polish mother uh, who was a war refugee. Uh, she came to the UK from Italy uh, with the Polish army that fought the Germans there. And she became naturalized uh, in the UK and soon after became a British citizen. Um, um, I never knew my dad. I never had a dad. So she was a single mum uh, raising me. <clears throat> and... Um, she wasn't able to actually take care of me when I was little uh, because in those days in England there were no welfare benefits for single mothers, yeah? Uh, so she put me into foster care. And uh, I went into foster care with this Polish lady um, who took in kids um, that weren't her own. She was paid for doing this job. And uh, she was like a professional foster mother, if you like, yeah? Yeah. And uh, so I went there when I was 18 months old. And, uh, of course, I don't remember very much at that time. Um, but um, um, as I started to grow up, uh, I began to realize that the affection that she had for my foster brother uh, was um, much deeper than how she felt about me. Yeah. Um, she She actually... Uh, she, she, she gave me the care that I needed, but in a very cold and indifferent way. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up feeling that I, feeling rejected basically as a child and that my foster brother, uh, was getting all the love and all the affection. And uh, I started to feel really angry about that. <clears throat> um, when I, when I was old enough to know what was going on, um, I was also very angry. <clears throat> that my my mother put me into care in the first place uh, and I took that as an abandonment and <clears throat> so already at a fairly early age 
um, I had quite severe identity issues and self-esteem issues from as far back as I can remember. <clears throat> and what was interesting was that this foster mother uh, was um, a very ardent church-going Christian, yeah? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we had to go to church every Sunday, and uh, there was quite a rigid um, Catholic regimen in the foster family that I grew up with. And um, I began to wonder um, what on earth was this woman going to church for, yeah, and talking about God, yeah, <clears throat> and talking about love, the love of Jesus and all the rest of it, uh, when she was treating me so badly, yeah. Um, I, I, uh, I, I don't say this uh, as a victim because I've dealt with those issues by going through the steps, but the reality of it was that she was a bully. Uh, she was emotionally abusive. Uh, she put me down a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, she constantly compared me to my foster brother, who I suppose you could say was the family hero. Yeah. And so I grew up uh, with um, a lot of confusion about God. Um, uh, it has to be said that by the time I was nine or 10 years old and I, started to gain a little bit of self-awareness. Um, I also had a very kind of childlike fantasy about God. And I also, the feelings of abandonment that I felt from my mother, um, I also projected onto my fantasy or my, my idea of what God was. So my thinking was that if my mother abandoned me, then God had abandoned me too. Um, because if there was a God, he would never have allowed that to happen to me. So already uh, I had resentments or reservations about the whole idea uh, of God. Uh, and then when I was about nine or ten years old, uh, my mother sent me to a Roman Catholic Polish boarding school outside London, uh, run by an order of Polish priests. And the religious regimen there, uh, was very austere as well, yeah. yeah? And um, uh, we had to attend Mass every morning and benediction every evening, and three times a day we would have to recite a prayer called the Angelus, yeah, before meal times, and we were punished for non-attendance or for disregard or not showing up at Mass, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so by the time I, I was uh, um, 13 years old, uh, I had a massive chip on my shoulder uh, about the way that I was treated by my foster mother. I was very angry uh, that my mother had abandoned me and put me into care because I took it as abandonment. I didn't understand that she had to work to support herself and me because she was paying this woman. Uh, and so um, I became a very angry and bitter young man at the age of 15 or 16. And um, while all this was going on, um, um, my mother became an active alcoholic as well, on top of that, yeah? And uh, she, she uh, met a guy who was a Polish doctor, and uh, he was uh, a fairly violent and abusive alcoholic, and uh, she started to drink with him. Uh, and so whenever I was home on holidays, uh, I would come home to a mother that was completely inebriated, yeah? 
I think you also said that I believe that. So you were nine years old when she got took you out of foster care. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And you didn't. You, did you not have any contact with your mother until that time? I had. I went home for holiday. No, oh, no, that's okay. not true. That's not true. Okay. Um, uh, she did come and visit me and take me out for the day. Oh, okay. Uh, when I was with my foster mother. Yeah. I see. Um, so you, and, did have uh, a, you had that relate. You knew of your mother then. Okay. I was wondering about that when I read your story. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had, I did have a connection. Uh, she, she always loved me, my mum, but circumstances were such that right. she couldn't take care of me. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it was the same when I went to boarding school. Um, <clears throat> I would come home, not to my foster mother anymore, but to my biological mother. Gotcha. I would come home for holidays. Yeah. Uh, and this is when, by this time, my mother was a daily drinker. Yeah, uh, so I would come home, and um, and uh, more or less the whole weekend that I was there, there was very little connection between me and my mother because she was drunk. <clears throat> so as you can imagine, I was a sensitive child, and as you can imagine, um, I took all of this very badly. Yeah, and um, uh, I, I took example from my mother. And as soon as I was able, uh, I picked up my first drink at the age of 13. And uh, my very first drink, I was an alcoholic from the moment that I picked up my first drink. Yeah, uh, I wanted to get as out of my head as possible so that I didn't have to feel the pain and the confusion uh, and the rage that I felt both towards my, my, my mother for abandoning me to God that I absolutely hated if it even did exist, yeah, right. <clears throat> uh, and um, and to my foster mother. And I became an, an alcoholic, and I have to be honest and say that um, I didn't only have alcoholism when I was a teenager. Um, I, I had, uh, I developed, as a result of my experiences, my childhood experiences, uh, I developed quite severe personality disturbances. Yeah. And um, um, by the time I was 15 years old, uh, my mother took me to see a psychiatrist uh, and I was removed from school. Um, and at 15, I was uh, placed in a psychiatric institution. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, where I spent the next three years. Yeah. All the time, every moment that I could get, I drank and I took drugs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, to me, life had uh, dealt me a very bad hand and I wanted to drown my misery and my pain and my unhappiness with alcohol and drugs. And I became a full-on alcoholic and addict. Um, um, I spent three years in that hospital and I had other hospitalizations in other hospitals in the meantime. But in the end, I went back to my original hospital and... Um, one day they decided to discharge me after this long period of, of being in hospital. And I was sent home um, <clears throat> because I refused to comply with their treatment program. Yeah, I was a rebel. I was a born rebel. So I went home to my mother and my mother had by this time met, met someone and was in a relationship with someone. And I guess, in all honesty, I was such a mess um, as a drunk and as an addict uh, that she wouldn't accept me at home. 
uh, and I had to take to the streets, yeah? And I lived on the streets for quite a long time uh, <clears throat> and eventually ended up in prison. And, um, and uh, I spent a little while in prison. Um, I was actually planted up with drugs by the police. I don't know if you know that expression, uh, but uh, they were clearing up the neighborhood that I was in from alcoholics and addicts. And uh, they, they put drugs on my person, arrested me. Yeah, they, they actually planted drugs on me and I was arrested and sent to prison. Um, and so <clears throat> I'm not going to go into the, 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 the whole details of my, my using. But by the time I was 23, I found um, what in AA is described as the geographical cure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I got an opportunity to go to Israel to work on a kibbutz in Israel. Okay. Yeah, uh, my mother paid for the flight because in London she was afraid that I would kill myself drinking and drugging. Yeah, so I got sent out to Israel to work on a kibbutz, and um, of course there was no access to drugs there, uh, so I just took to the bottle. Now in Israel at the time, uh, it was something like a dollar or $2 for a bottle of vodka, yeah? Mm. <clears throat> so I drank to my heart's content. I stayed in Israel for two years um, and uh, eventually had to come back to the UK. Uh, and as soon as I got back, I started using again, yeah? And it carried on like that. I'm not going to go into the whole story, but it carried on like that until I was 30. Uh, when I was 30... Um, I found myself on another geographical cure in Norway. I went to Norway oh. uh, to visit a girl that I <clears throat> I met <clears throat> uh, on the kibbutz, and I fell head over heels in love with this girl. Uh, and I met her on the kibbutz, and um, uh, and um, <clears throat> uh, that was an unrequited relationship. So I went to Norway, uh, and I met this other girl there. Um, in Norway that I ended up marrying, yeah? Uh, uh, and uh, <clears throat> we came back to London. And uh, as soon as we came back to London, uh, I started to go to meetings. Okay. Uh, I was 30 years old when I went to my first meeting uh, and I started to go to meetings. And I went to, me I loved, I loved the fellowship. Mm -hmm. I loved AA and I went to the other fellowship as well. Um, I absolutely love the meetings because for the first time in my life, I had a sense that I belonged somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I had a sense of, of connection. Uh, all my life, uh, I felt like an alien from another planet on in this world. Yeah. And I went to my first meeting and people were talking about how I felt all my life, basically. Yeah. And it was a homecoming for me. Coming to to the fellowship was a homecoming, and I loved the fellowship from from my first meeting. And uh, it took a while for the fog to clear, for the alcoholic fog to clear. And uh, I was completely off my head when I <laughs> when I came to the fellowship with that kind of history and that kind of uh, uh, drinking. Uh, but eventually, the fog cleared. And um, I began to look around the rooms and see what was going on in the meetings. And I noticed that people uh, had all had sponsors and they were all working the steps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I looked at the steps on the scrolls on the wall. And I came to steps two and three. 
And at that moment, I have to say that my heart sank, yeah? And I thought, oh my God, yeah? What on earth has God or a higher power got to do with not drinking and drugging, yeah? I couldn't see the connection. Um, and I began to suspect that perhaps the fellowship wasn't the right place for me after all, yeah? When I saw steps two and three. Um, at the time, to me, a higher power meant the same thing as God. To me, they were the same. To me, they were the same thing. So steps two and three were impossible for me to take. And so I decided not to bother getting a sponsor or doing the steps. And I decided to try and deal with my issues, which I had many, yeah, by going into psychotherapy, yeah. So I was going to meetings and I embarked on a 10-year journey of trying to resolve my early trauma or issues um, by going into analytical psychotherapy. Um, now, psychotherapy or therapy works for a lot of alcoholics uh, and a lot of addicts, yeah? But in all honesty, it didn't work for me. And I couldn't understand why I was doing all this therapy and I was feeling even more angry and even more bitter about the things that happened to me as a kid with the abandonment and with the uh, emotional neglect that I suffered with my foster mother. Um, and I, I, I kept on relapsing. I was going to therapy and I used to come out of therapy so full of rage and bitterness, even talking about my childhood, yeah, that I would go home and I would drink or use, yeah. Um, and um, <clears throat> it just got worse and worse. And it, it got to the stage, I was going to meetings all the time. I never stopped going to meetings, but I was getting mentally and emotionally, I was getting sicker instead of better. And I couldn't understand why therapy wasn't working for me, yeah. I found out much, much later when I was doing the steps uh, with a sponsor um, that what I was actually using or drinking on was something that he told me he called the victim belief system, yeah. Uh, I had a very, very strong victim belief system and uh, it wasn't helping me to think like that or to have that belief, yeah. So I was, um, <clears throat> I was 13 years uh, in AA, and um, I was sitting of all places in a step one meeting where they did the step one every, every, every week on a Sunday in London. Mm -hmm. And I was listening to the first step read out of the 12 and 12. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one. Glass in hand, we have warped our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence could remove it from us. So here I was, 13 years in, counting days again, yeah, in a, in a situation of absolute hopelessness and despair. And something happened to me in that meeting which although it was very painful, John, yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, and the way that I understand it today was that my ego collapsed in that meeting. Mm. I knew that I was absolutely done, that my way wasn't working, yeah, um, <clears throat> that uh, 
that, that, that my very best thinking would always end up with a drink or a drug in my hands, yeah? And uh, I didn't know what else to do. I kind of had a sense uh, that my number was up and that if I didn't do something very radical about myself, um, I was going to die. And that became a very clear reality. It was a very uh, sobering moment sure. um, for me uh, to realize that if I carried on like this, it was going to all be over for me very soon. And I went, I, I ended up going to this, these meetings in Chelsea, these AA meetings, which um, I knew had a reputation of having very tough sponsorship. Yeah. Right. And um, I, I'd met the guy that started these meetings. His name was David B. Uh, and he's a fairly well-known charismatic figure in the London Fellowship. I think I've heard of him. I've heard another guest talk about him before. Yeah, and I asked him for sponsorship, yeah. Uh, David B. Uh, started um, uh, a cluster of groups in the London Fellowship known as the Vision for You, yeah, okay. groups. And they were known in London, they, 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 were, they were a cult, in fact, yeah. Uh, they were an AA cult, um, and they worked on a very, very strict sponsorship ethic, yeah, uh, where you didn't do anything without your sponsor's permission. Yeah. Okay. So I asked, I was so desperate. I had, I suppose, what you would call the gift of desperation. Yeah. Which actually is a useful acronym for God, gift of desperation. Yeah. And I had that gift of desperation and I asked David B to help me. And he said to me, he was a, he was a ex British army captain. Yeah. Um, from a very, from a fairly aristocratic English family, um, and he ran those vision for you groups like like they were the army, yeah. Um, and all of his sponsees called him the captain. Mm. And the first thing that he said to me was, "Are you willing to go to any lengths, lad?" Yeah. And I said, "Yes, David, I'm willing to do whatever you say. If you tell me jump, I'll jump. How you know? I'll just ask mm -hmm. how high." And then he gave me a sticker to put on my shaving mirror, which was a turning point in my recovery. Um, and I had to stick this sticker on my shaving mirror and look at it every morning when I was shaving. And the sticker said, you are now looking at the problem. Yeah. And to me, that was a massive turning point because all my life I'd blamed my childhood uh, I'd blamed the psychiatrists, the social workers. Um, I blamed my foster mother. Uh, I, bl I blamed my alcoholic mother. It was everyone else's fault uh, that I was an alcoholic and I was uh, destroying my life. And now David was suggesting to me that I was the problem. And I, at the time, I'm, I needed to hear that, yeah, because I was so committed to the victim belief system, John, that I was really going to kill myself with it. Yeah, I, I had a death wish. I had a horrendous death wish by this time. And so I started to go through the steps. Now, the strange thing is, is that David B was a practicing Catholic, yeah? In fact, he used to have this very strange ritual every Sunday morning, yeah? He had about 30 sponsees, David did, yeah? And every Sunday morning, all of his sponsees 
had to go to the Brompton Oratory Catholic Church in London and attend Mass. And he, he, he insisted that you do that, whether you believed in God or not. Yeah. Mm. So everybody had to, had to wear a suit and show up to Mass every Sunday morning. And I said to him during sponsorship, uh, when he was sponsoring me, I said, but David, I don't believe in God. To me, it is absolute nonsense. And despite the fact that he was a practicing Catholic, he did something which probably saved my life. Yeah. He took me, he, he guided me he, to page 27 of the 12 and 12. And there at the bottom of the page, Bill clearly states in the chapter on step two, you can, if you wish, make AA your higher power. Yeah. And I never heard that before. I never heard that I could actually make AA my higher power. Yeah. And to me, that was the turning point. And I suddenly realized that I had a higher power. That was AA. And, and, and I began to develop other conceptions of higher powers that were practical that I could use. And those conceptions were David's suggestions, daily suggestions. Uh, I don't want to say that I turned David into my higher power, but I, I did turn his suggestions into my higher power, yeah? And the suggestions were a daily program of writing daily gratitude lists, yeah? Calling newcomers, getting service commitments, yeah? Um, um, and all those kind of practical things to help me to get out of myself, yeah? Because I was totally self-obsessed and self-centered, yeah? Uh, um, and uh, when I got to step three, I said, David, uh, how am I going to do this step three? And he said to me, lad, step three is just a decision to go on with the rest of the steps. There you go. That's That's how I see it. Just to go on with the rest of the steps. It's yeah? a decision. That's exactly it's right. You know, so many people get hung up on the, uh, the the God part of that step. But the most important part of the step is the decision. It, it was a decision, he it's told decision. me, mm-hmm. to, go, to, to go on with the rest of the steps. And he said to me that when you get to step 12, you're not even promised a God awakening. What you're promised is a spiritual awakening. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and he said to me that you won't experience that until you complete the first nine steps. Yeah. You won't even know, you know, uh, what a spiritual awakening means. So don't worry about God. Don't worry about any spiritual awakenings. Just do the steps. And that's exactly what I did. I just became teaching. I became teachable. And God for me at that time was G-O-D, which standard for good orderly direction yeah which is a very useful i found that to be a very useful acronym yeah um and i worked through the steps and when we got to step eight uh david david um had uh, a fairly unusual way of doing step eight yeah um he he had his sponsees doing it in three columns yeah in the first column, you had to write down the person that you had harmed. In the second column, you had to write down the exact nature of the harm that you caused them. And in the third column, 
you had to write down how you would have felt if the same thing had been done to you. Hmm. Yeah. So I did that. And you have to remember that I was completely self-obsessed. I saw myself as a total victim. Yeah. Um, it was all about me. And here I was writing down all the people that I'd harmed. And believe me, there were many. Yeah. But I couldn't see that until I did my fourth and fifth step. Yeah. Um, and I wrote down all the harms that I'd caused them and how I would have felt if I'd have received the same harm. And as I was writing, I suddenly realized that there was tears streaming down my face. Yeah. And those tears suddenly became full on uh, sobbing. Yeah. And I started to sob and cried uncontrollably while I was writing my eighth step. And for me, John, that was a spiritual awakening right there. Because for the first time in my life, I was able to access empathy and compassion for the harms that I'd caused other people, yeah? And my self-centeredness uh, was neutralized in that moment because I got in touch with the empathy and uh, 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 and the compassion that had always been within me, but was buried under the self-centeredness of the disease, yeah, of alcoholism. And I knew in that moment that I could never be the same person again, yeah, that well, come what may, uh, I had to uh, try my utmost to become a decent human being. Yeah, because I did. I, did. I screwed a lot of people when I was drinking and drugging. There was no question about it. I was a liar, a thief, a cheat, and a manipulator, and a user and abuser of people, all designed to fill the terrible emptiness inside me. Yeah, and uh, and um, um, from that day forward, I believe that my spiritual awakening began. Yeah, and. For me, <clears throat> that was the vital spiritual experience that Carl Jung talked about in, in chapter two uh, when he was working with Roland H. Yeah, uh, it, was the it was the entire psychic change that Dr. Silkworth talked about in the doctor's opinion. Yeah. I simply became a, a, a decent human being and I was able to feel other people's pain, more importantly, the pain that I had caused them. And ever since then, my journey has been about seeing what I can contribute to people rather than what I can take from people, yeah? And that has been my journey in AA in steps 10, 11, and 12, is learning uh, how to help others, basically. And I have found tremendous happiness peace and freedom uh, by helping others. It overcomes the self-centeredness of the disease. Uh, when I'm doing service or when I'm sponsoring someone, guess what? I'm not thinking about me. Right. And How when I'm not... How period of time did it take you to go through those steps? I had to go through them several times, John, if I'm okay. honest. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there was so much denial, yeah, and I was so committed to the victim belief system um, that after I left David, uh, I got a guy from LA called Jamie, yeah, who relapsed after 20 years in, in, in AA. 
and he went through the steps again and uh, he showed me a way of doing step four that I'd never seen before, yeah, which was the way that Joe and Charlie did step four in the five columns, right. where in the fifth column you had to answer five questions, yeah, beside each resentment that you had. Where was I dishonest? Where was I self-seeking? Where was I frightened? Um, where was I at fault? Where was my mistake, yeah? And that helped to kind of dismantle my victim belief system when I began to live in the fifth column of the fourth step. And Jamie helped me with that, yeah? Um, and um, I came out of the, very gradually, I came out of the victim belief system, which was killing me, yeah? And I started to grow up and become an adult, a normal, integrated right. adult, yeah? Uh, and the blame game stopped, yeah? And, uh, and I understood that my sobriety, that I would never be cured of alcoholism, I will never be cured of this disease, that, it, it, that indeed, yeah, uh, my recovery was contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition, on the daily maintenance of my spiritual right. con condition. Uh, and so, so I... That, when you talk about the victim, uh, what do you call it, the victim? Um, the victim call, mindset? What's it, what's it called? Uh, um, Jamie, Jamie, Jamie said to me, the, he called it the victim belief system. The victim belief system. So basically, by by not by not focusing on the harm that others had done you, and rather on your reaction to whatever events happened in your life, it kind of gave you more gave you more of an ability to actually um, learn something about yourself because you could kind of you can kind of um, put the the harm, like the, the, the church, you know, that, 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 was, that, that they weren't, they, they were, they were abusive, you know, your, your foster mother, she was abusive, but focusing on that wasn't helpful. So it was I have helpful. no resentments. I have no resentments towards my foster mother. Yeah. Um, my mother died about 10 or 11 years ago and it was the last two years of her life. I was her full-time carer. Yeah. I actually went to live in the family in her, in her apartment and took care of her for the last two years. And I treated her appallingly as well. She abandoned me when I was a kid. Right. Uh, but I, I, I actually was violent with my mother. I stole from her. Uh, I did terrible things to my mother. So when she became too ill to look after herself and I went there to look after her, that was like a living amend to my mother, yeah? And um, towards the end of her life, uh, we enjoyed the closest relationship we ever had. Yeah. Something it, it that I noticed as I, as I was going through steps four and five and particularly with my mother and she was, um, she suffered from mental illness and she was also, um, uh, she wasn't a supportive, loving mother. Okay. She, and uh, she could be and, and times she was unpredictable, but yeah. um, but what I found when I, when I started taking a look at myself through the inventory process, I was actually able to see that, well, if I, you know, I was actually, I was able to see my mother and me and me and my mother, I was able to see that she was doing the best that she could, that whatever she experienced in her life brought her to the place where she was. And That's for me, so true. yeah, for me, it kind of gave me a, a 
an understanding, I guess. It helped me with my resentment against her so that the, yeah. those resentments fell away because I was able to see that, you know, she um, had a mentally ill father. Absolutely. You know, and she grew up poor and she took a lot of abuse as, a, as when she was growing up, uh, prob- much more than I did. You know, so, and I, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things that, you know, um, the cycle stops with me. Thank you. you. Thank you. In fact, I had a profound experience when I was working with Jamie, when he was sponsoring me, I was in the middle of my fifth step. And uh, I said, I said, Jamie, when I began to realize how distorted my perception of my history had been and how I was only able to focus on the harms that others had done me, yeah, I said to Jamie, Jamie, how did I ever get so screwed up and distorted in my thinking? Yeah? And Jamie said to me, Andy, years of practice, my friend. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Which I thought was really funny. And then he says, what you've got to remember, Andy, <clears throat> is that as an alcoholic, you have always done the very best you could with the information available to you at the time. Yeah. That's right. So if that was true for me, yeah, it was true for my mother. It was true for my foster mother. And it was true for all the other people that abused me. They were mm-hmm. acting out their own wounds on me. That's right. Yeah. That's right subconsciously yeah um my foster mother went through the warsaw uprising during the second world war and had to work in the jewish ghetto in warsaw and saw daily atrocities to the jewish people yeah uh, by the germans uh, when she was taking provisions into the jewish ghetto in warsaw yeah she was traumatized by that she was clearly traumatized by that yeah um my 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 mother had the most horrendous childhood yeah uh, in in poland yeah um uh, i'm not going to go into the details but okay. she was a very psychologically wounded person and she was just acting out subconsciously her Absolutely. own wounds on me yeah, yeah. this trauma yeah. goes the trauma so, is passed down from generation to generation Indeed, indeed. So in my book, I, I say that this isn't, this is, you know, it's not for nothing that they call alcoholism the family disease. It's, it's, it's a cross-generational disease. It goes from generation to generation. And, uh, and my, I come from a particularly dysfunctional family, yeah, in Poland, going back at least six generations. Very, very unwell people if you like yeah so so um uh i was an alcoholic waiting to happen right by the time i was i was yeah. 13 years old do you know what i mean yeah. so that was my story i've got no resentments uh, total forgiveness yeah a total understanding and in many ways my experiences of early life uh, i've been able to reframe them and see them in a way as a gift because it's helped me to access more compassion for other people's suffering, yeah? Uh, because I've been there and I've worn the T-shirt, and I'd like to believe uh, that when someone comes to me and asks for sponsorship and they're in a lot of pain, yeah, I'm able to really empathize with that pain, yeah, um, and, so and, how, and, how and to, extend uh, a hand of compassion. So how did you finally get to Thailand? Um, 
this is this is also interesting. <laughs> My mother never made a formal amend to me for the harms uh -huh. that she done me. Yeah, but what she did do was buy me a flat in Thailand. She actually bought me a condominium in Thailand. That was her amend oh. to me. Oh. Yeah, okay. and said, Get, yeah. Yeah, she bought me a condo in Thailand and she said, don't stay in England. It's a lost cause. And England is, is, is gone to the dogs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, there's no future there for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, go, and live, go and live in Thailand. Yeah. And so I retired early from my profession. Uh, I worked in social care uh, as a community support worker doing uh, floating support with the elderly, yeah? Mm -hmm. So I retired early and I came to live in Thailand and, and that's where I, I met my partner. Uh, we've been together for five years, yeah? Hi. And um, have a good life in Thailand. I'm retired now and have a really wonderful life in Thailand. Uh, we Hi. have six AA meetings here a week, yeah? in the town that I live. You're very welcome to come and visit, John, if you're ever in in, uh, in Thailand, yeah? Someday, someday and, they uh, will let Americans travel. <laughs> someday they'll let uh, Americans not travel today. again. <laughs> not now they not, won't. Not for today. <laughs> not for today. The borders yeah. are still firmly closed, yeah? <laughs> um, so, so, so that's it, really. Um, um, so what got you interested I, in writing I, I, the book? The book, what well, got you That's another in interesting story. I was seeing an awful lot. I almost died. I almost died, John, as a result of not being able to do the steps uh, because I couldn't get my head around the God word or a higher power. It was literally death for me. Yeah. Um, and I know that there's a lot of people in the fellowship in London. I cannot talk about America sure. or any other country, but there's a lot of people in, in the fellowship in London that either leave AA because of the God word or don't even bother coming to AA in the first place because they see AA as some kind of quasi-religion, yeah? yeah? So they don't even bother coming. And my, 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 my belief is that there's a lot of alcoholics dying, drinking themselves to death because they can't get to grips with any concept of a higher power, yeah? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I thought to myself, I owe it to myself and to these people to share my experiences that you don't need to believe in God for the steps to work for you. Yeah. Right. Uh, you do need higher powers, practical higher powers, AA itself, the suggestions of a sponsor, the steps themselves. Um, even writing daily gratitude lists was a power greater than me because it mm -hmm. helped to resolve my my uh, my self pity trips, which I used to suffer from. Yeah, uh, so um, there are a lot of very practical higher powers available in AA that are not divine in nature, right? If you know what I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that uh, yeah, I was, I was looking in your website, uh, which has some great information about. Uh, what you're planning on doing with the book. And it looks really interesting, you know, the the things that you're going to write about, you know, your journey through the steps, uh, about you're going to write about sponsorship. You're going to talk about, you know, helping people get through the God bit in, in AA and also about relapse. And that's, yeah. that's, 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 I think, a good thing to write about. Um, actually, uh, that's what, what are your thoughts about relapse? 
I think that it's a part of the disease of alcoholism. Yeah. It's a, for, for some people, it's part of their journey. It is. Uh, and, uh, and it's been a very important part of my journey. Relapse has got me to David B. Yeah. Right. And right. although he was not, he's not the type of sponsor that I would have chosen under normal circumstances, uh, um, relapse got me to David B. And in his own strange way, David B probably saved my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a lovely piece there's a lovely piece in As Bill Sees It uh, by Bill where he says that sometimes relapse is not necessarily a bad thing for many alcoholics it can be seen as a kick upstairs and that's not downstairs right. yeah I remember that yeah? reading yep. that's right and I that's thought a, to it, myself that's exactly what my relapse yeah, yep. yeah I, I don't yeah you know it's like you don't forget you don't forget what you what what you may have learned in the past. You may have you may actually learn something from from that, but it's like anything that you've been able to build during that time before the relapse, you still have. And the relapse can just make you stronger by learning from, you know, even more from from that experience and sharing it with other people. Well, I think that the greatest gift that I got from all my relapses was and I think that I also had some denial here for a long time is that I didn't really believe that I was powerless over alcohol and drugs. Deep down, I didn't really believe it. And I also didn't believe that my... Those relapses and the amount of chaos that I created as an untreated alcoholic, yeah, uh, all my relapses convinced me beyond any shadow of a doubt that I was absolutely powerless over alcohol and other substances, and that left to my own devices, I was in, incapable of managing my own life. Therefore, I had to come under new management. And David right. B happened to be my new manager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so I really I like your website. I like your website. Um, you know, when I when I was actually first coming to terms with being an atheist in in AA. Uh, one, one thing that I did that helped me through that was write. And so I started a website for my home group and there was a blog on that website. And so I would write, uh, much like what you're, you're doing about my understanding of my experience in AA as a non-believer and how I choose to interpret that experience and explain it, you know, and I, I'm similar to you. I, I came up in a group that was very much into the big book and had a very regimented way of going through that book. And I was, uh, I participated in that group for 25 years before I re before I, I realized to myself, I was an atheist. And, uh, but as I looked at the big book, I didn't really have a problem. When I read that, I could see that everything that was in there was pretty practical. And if I just crossed out the God stuff, all the practical action was still left in there. So for me, I was quite comfortable with, with, uh, with that process, but it was really hard to explain that to the people who were deeply devoted to the God idea. Uh, <laughs> you know? So it's great to Absolutely. have, it's great to have this, this um, access to uh, people who have the, have a similar belief system like you and I, and cause it does help a lot of people to find a website like yours and to see that, oh yeah, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to worry about all that God stuff. 
you know, there are many different ways to view a higher power, as you've mentioned. So I look forward to see, reading your book when you have it all done. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. It's quite a, pro- quite a project, what- I'm sure. <laughs> say, say again? It's quite a project, I'm sure. No, no, I'm enjoying the journey. I'm enjoying yeah. the journey. Uh, yeah. There's one other thing that I would like to say. Okay. is that uh, I certainly had problems other than alcohol when mm-hmm. I came in, yeah? Uh, I had I got two diagnoses uh, from professional um, uh, healthcare people. The first diagnosis was borderline personality disorder, yeah? Mm-hmm. And the second diagnosis was uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, Yeah. And all I can tell you is that my work on the steps as a non-believer, as an agnostic, has helped to resolve those issues. That's great. And that to me is a, that to me is a miracle. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's great. Well, and it's good of you to pass that on to others uh, that are like you and me. So good work. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs>